0: Okay, um, week one, Jesus is the head of the church. Week two, what is church? And we looked at the word church really means assemble. This idea that we live in community, we equip one another and we send one another. That was week two. Week three, we really began last uh, two weeks ago, but the third week of the series, we looked at the healthy marks of a church. What are the healthy characteristics of a godly church? And so the first characteristic we looked at two weeks ago in week three of the series was the proclamation of the gospel. This is what a healthy church does. We live out the proclaimed gospel. And so we preach it. And we preach it and proclaim it with our lives. We do it here. We do it everywhere. And I really, two weeks ago, I challenged you. I said, I'm praying that God would lead every single person who calls Waukee Community Church their home to have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with one person this year. More if possible, but everybody at least one. Can you imagine if we actually interacted with someone around the truth of the claims of Christ? And so, and then I also said, I'm challenging every one of us to invite one person, one person to the Sunday gathering or invite and bring one person into your life group. However that works, bring them into community. And so a relationship that you already have with someone, bring them, bring them on because we want to be that kind of church that lives out the gospel. So today, now we're in our fourth week in this series because last week was Faith in Action Sunday. Today, we're looking at another right marker of the church And that is a proper celebration of the ordinances. A healthy, good, right church has a proper understanding and celebration of the ordinances, specifically baptism and communion. And so when you think of the ordinances today, what do you think about? You know, normally we think about the Lord's Supper. And, you know, we think about this hunk of bread and a bottle of grape juice or wine to be a little bit more biblical I got uh, the cheapest wine I could buy at the grocery store. It's a Zinfandel. I don't know anything about it. But uh, there you go. So, uh, you know, when we normally think about these kinds of things. And, we, you know, we look at it and we get the juice in, in a little tiny cup. And, and we get a piece of bread. And, you know, normally if, if you're like me, you think, oh, did someone make the good bread for communion today? Because some, somebody makes some bread that is really tasty out there, you know. And we come to this table and, and what are we doing You know, when we go to a baptism service, when we were over at the Christ's house and, and we were dunking people in the pool, I mean, what are we doing? What's going on? Have we ever thought about these things beyond just the routine? What's going on? I mean, for communion, when we hold up the bread and the cup, sometimes if we really don't enter in and consider it, I mean, it might as well just be this. Put up that picture. It might as well just be Coca-Cola and Twinkies, right? You know, I mean, could we celebrate communion with Coca-Cola and Twinkies? You got your Coke or your diet Coke, depending on your preference, right? Either one, you could do it. I mean, what are we doing? Why are these important? Is there something magical that happens when we take these communion elements? And what about baptism? What is baptism about? Is it just simply a rite of passage or is there something else going on? Is there something magical that happens in baptism? You know, as we think about baptism and communion, as we think about these right ordinances that a right, healthy church celebrates, I'm reminded of a quote by Donald Whitney. He said this, throw that up there. He says, you need to put actual worship in your acts of worship. I like that. We need to put actual worship in our acts of worship. Is it enough to just dunk people? Is it enough to just take the bread and hope that it tastes good and, and take a little juice and wish you had some more. I mean, is it enough or do we, can we put actual worship in our acts of worship? What are the ordinances? So today I wanna to just talk about ordinances and then a little later on, we're gonna trace some threads through the ordinances together. And so what are ordinances? Well, uh, let's talk about ordinances a little bit. The word ordinance really uh, in most of the church tradition was called a sacrament. The word sacrament comes from the Latin sacramento, not the city in California, but uh, it it comes from the Latin word for sacrament, and and that really refers to something sacred. It kind of makes sense when you hear it there. Now, the word word sacrament in Latin came from a Greek word in the New Testament, and that word was the word mysterium in the Greek. Don't you kind of hear in the Greek that word mystery? Over the centuries in the church, you can see why sacraments got this mysterious sort of magical quality about the sacraments. Um, in, the, in the evangelical church, we tend to refer to them as ordinances to get away from some of that baggage maybe that the word sacrament holds. Um, I don't really have a problem with the word sacrament. It doesn't really bother me at all. We just kind of use the word ordinance and sacrament interchangeably. But I think one of the reasons that we have embraced this word ordinance in our church tradition is because the word ordinance has associated with it the idea of obedience. This isn't something magical or mystical, but the ordinances are richly, richly symbolic. They're richly. This is not just a memorial. This is not just a ceremony in baptism. There is such rich symbolism here that it allows us as a body of Christ to re-engage the symbol and the truth behind the symbol. Now, how many ordinances do we have? Well, we celebrate two in our tradition, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholics have seven. You may know this. The Roman Catholics have seven. They are I had to write them down because I can never remember. The, the, they work through the stages of life from birth to death. So uh, you have baptism, confirmation, penance, Eucharist, ordination, marriage, and extreme unction. Did I get them right? All right, I got them. Now, the, as the Protestant tradition holds to two, baptism and communion. Why? Why is this? Well, it's, it's simply because as part of our Protestant tradition, starting with Luther, was we care about what the Word of God says. And we see two ordinances in the Word of God. Now, to, to be fair to the Catholics, part of their thing is that they see that church tradition is very important. They hold it up on par with Scripture, sometimes higher than Scripture. And so for, it's not like they're just making this stuff up out of the blue. They're trying to be consistent with their pattern, and so they hold seven. But we only see two in Scripture, and because the Word of God is important to us, we say, we'll take these two, because this is what Jesus set as a pattern for us. We celebrate baptism and communion because the scriptures teach us to do these things. In baptism, we see believers' baptism. And we see the tradition of scripture pointing to immersion, full immersion. So that's why we want a pool or something to fully dunk someone in. And then we see communion. And there's, the, there's this rich memorial symbolism of the body and blood of Jesus. Now, as we do this, As we hold up these elements, as we take them together, we'll do this a little later on, it it occurs to me that one might ask the question, when you're getting ready to take this bread and drink this cup, when maybe you are going to be baptized or you're watching someone else be baptized, it occurs to me that you might ask the question, as I do sometimes, what's in this for me? What's in it for me? I mean, let's be honest for a minute. What do you get out of church? I mean, what do you get about be out of being part of the community? What do you get out of the ordinances? I mean, if baptism is just a symbol, what do I get out of it? Um, I, at Waukee Community Church, we dedicate infants. We follow the pattern of Scripture that was set forth throughout all the pages of Scripture of people dedicating their children to the Lord. And so we don't baptize infants because well, not all circles, but uh, while well, in not all circles, but in some circles, baptism is people kind of mean. Okay, I want to get my kid baptized, my infant. So if something happens, they'll go to heaven. That's, and we would say, no, 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 no. Baptism has nothing to do with salvation. We dedicate infants to the Lord, but we don't baptize them. But you know, to be honest, what's in it for me? I, I've known of parents who. They're like, hey, you know, Pastor Dave, we want you to, to uh, dedicate our child to the Lord. But secretly afterwards, we're going to go find someone to baptize them just in case you're wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like that, just in case. And, you know, I can't express how much this undermines the gospel. Because suddenly we say... Yes, I really want the grace of Jesus to be sufficient and I want it to be about faith and a a genuine faith and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. But if there's something I can do, I'll work for that. It just undermines the gospel. Now, not all churches baptize infants for salvation. There's a lot of churches that say, no, this act isn't salvific. Sorry, big word. Uh, this, is, this act of sprinkling a child is, is bringing them into a covenant family. And, and so, but we would just say, baptism is this beautiful picture. And so what, what, is, what is in it for me? Now, when we go to the Lord's table, when we take this bread and this cup, is there anything magically happening there? Uh, I mean, it doesn't appear to me that in, when we break the bread and bless it, that anything magical is happening here. Is there? I mean, is there some way in which when Pastor Dave prays over this and blesses this, this becomes something magical? Is, is, is there some sense in which that happens? Is there? I guess the question I want to ask is, if there isn't, what's in it for me? What's in it for you? Now, for a moment, set aside that question that what's in it for me is a completely selfish and ridiculous question that we actually tell you not to ask because being part of the gospel and about a follower of Christ is so about giving your life away. But set aside that question Is there anything in it for you? Well, the answer is yes. In the ordinances, there is a reaffirmation of your identity, of who you are. When we participate in the ordinances of baptism and communion, there is a reaffirmation of who you are. Who are you? Who are you? You know, if someone were to ask you that question, who are you? What's your identity? Most of you would think, and probably a lot of people I know would respond with their job I am an electrician. I am a mortgage broker. I am an accountant. I am a lawyer. I am, (laughs) we have a lot of lawyers. We have to say that stuff. I am a pastor. Who am I? Uh, What's your job? Maybe someone would ask you that and you might respond, well, I'm a parent. Or I'm a spouse. Or maybe your identity is with a social group, you you know. Maybe you think, okay, I'm a techie guy. I am a gadget guy. I like gadgets. That's who I am. Or maybe you think I'm a sports lover. (laughs) Maybe your identity is you're an antisocial. You don't do people. You don't do friends. You don't get that. You just like to be alone. Leave me alone. Maybe you're an antisocial. I don't know. Are you identified by your singleness? Are you identified by your marriedness? Who are you? Are you old? Are you young? Who are you? We identify with many different roles in our lives, but who are we? I think a better question in answering that question, who are we? Is to ask the question, whose are we? To whom do we belong? Because our identity should come from him, not from what we do. Through faith in Jesus, you are a forgiven child of God and you're part of a family of God in Christ. And these symbols, baptism and communion, these symbols point us to that. They point us to it. You are a forgiven child of God and you're part of that family. And so today I want to show you two common threads. Two common threads that are going to work their way through both of these ordinances. And as we talk through these today, I want you to hang in there with me. Because I'm hopeful you'll see and you'll have a new kind of a a new take or a new twist or a new reminder maybe, a fresh reminder of just how beautiful these ordinances are. I want you to be secure in your identity in Christ. And I want you to connect with the people of God and be comforted in the forgiveness that you find in both baptism and communion. And so, in Christ, you are, thread number one, a forgiven child of God. You are a forgiven child of God. There's some key thoughts in here. Individual, as an individual... I do want to talk about that for a minute. As an individual, you're a forgiven child of God. There's this individual grace that is symbolized and made apparent and screamed out in the ordinances. Now, does grace come through the ordinances itself? So, does grace come by baptism? As a result of baptism, am I given grace? Does grace come by the bread or by the cup? Well, no, there's no magical forgiveness in ordinances. They're symbols. A symbol is something that represents something else. A symbol is a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. Forgiveness comes directly to you through the cross of Christ, not through the ordinances. Jesus brought forgiveness directly to you. So you are a forgiven child of God because of the cross. Now watch what the ordinances do and how they remind us of this. Let's look at baptism. Watch this thread in here for a minute. Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to reference Matthew and 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. So if you want to put a finger in both and flip back and forth, that would be great. Matthew chapter 28. Okay, so this is the Great Commission. Context is... Jesus has died, he's rose from the dead, he's uh, been around, he's getting ready to go up and ascend into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And before he goes, he gives them the great commission. And in verse 18, 28, 18, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We're supposed to go and make disciples and baptize them. Now, there's a key, there's three words right here that are really important that we often just overlook we just kind of, it's like the legal print at the end of a contract, right? Like, whatever, it's too small. Baptizing them in the name. In the name. Don't miss these three words. These are really, really important. When Clarissa and I got married, she, she took my name. She was Clarissa Christine Tertani. That is a mouthful and a lot of syllables, right? I rescued her from that. I gave her a, Brooks, we got a one syllable last name. You know, Clarissa Brooks, when when we got married, she took my name, she identified with me. She became part of my family. And in many ways, friends, I think my mom likes Clarissa better than she likes me. And you know, my mom wouldn't be wrong in that, (laughs) my mom, Clarissa was like the daughter she always wanted. And, and, uh, it, Clarissa became part of our family. She identifies with me, my name. She belongs to me, not as property. She's not my property, not as property, but as my spouse. Think about the symbolism of baptism. This is all about identification. When we go under the water, When we baptize someone, we take them under the water. And this is one of the reasons why I love full immersion baptism, because of the symbolism. When we take someone, we put them under the water. We're identifying, that person is identifying with the death of Jesus. This grace that's available to them, it's a symbol. I accept the forgiveness of Jesus through his death. His death and burial, it's a picture of it. And then when that person comes up out of the water, it's a picture of being raised with Christ. We're identifying with Jesus' resurrection. In his death, I accept his forgiveness. In his resurrection, I accept his forgiveness and his kingship over my life. And then we say, in the name. We baptize them in the name. We identify with the one who owns us. We take his name. I am David Brooks, Jesus child. I am David Brooks. I took his name. Jesus should be in my name somewhere now. In the name of Jesus. And don't miss those three little words. We get this wrong. We talk about baptism As just a merely a it's a public declaration of our faith. So in baptism, I'm just telling everyone that I'm a Christian. Well, yes, that's true. You are saying that, but you're doing it as an identification. Some people say, well, when we're baptizing, then we're actually saving them into the into heaven and of their sins. And that's just wrong. Some say, well, this dunk is just merely a nice rite of passage. No, that's wrong. The symbol is about identity. We belong to Jesus. I'm choosing my master, Jesus. Baptism is always closely associated with salvation all through the New Testament. There are phrases like, Baptism for the forgiveness of sins. They're all over the New Testament. Some would say salvation happens at baptism, but that contradicts the rest of the message of Scripture. The symbol is so closely tied to the reality that in Scripture, as we work through, these two are tied together. Someone comes, becomes a believer in Jesus. They say, I'm going to take his name and I'm going to be baptized now. The symbol is closely tied to the reality. The baptism doesn't save, but it's a natural reaction to being saved. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. But practically speaking, I mean, if you look at the New Testament, what did they do when someone became a believer? They didn't say, well, hold on, I got my little book here. Let me see. The last thing is we have to pray together. They didn't say that. They said, let's go get you baptized. There's the symbol. In, in the evangelical church, we've made baptism something else. We've said, well, baptism is for when we're really sure that you're really, really sure that you're a believer. Right now, we don't know. So we're going to wait until we're really, really, really sure. But that's not what they did in the New Testament. They just dunked people. We pray a nice little prayer with them. And we say, now you prayed, and we write in our Bible on this date that you... Well, they didn't have personal Bibles. They didn't and write stuff like that down. They said, I was baptized because salvation and baptism are closely associated. Uh, you know, we ought to just, you, you ought to be baptized if you're not, and you shouldn't wait longer. Just do it. Let's dunk people. Let's do it. Part of uh, part of baptizing or part of sharing our faith, and, and like as we go out, as we're challenging you this year to share your faith, I'm praying that That fruit will happen from that, and we'll see people come to the saving faith and knowledge of Jesus through all of our efforts. And as we do that, we let's get it on the calendar, man. Let's find out. We'll all go to the Y together and let's dunk somebody. Let's do it. Baptism is this beautiful symbol that you're a forgiven child of God. It's your identity. You are a forgiven child of God, and every time you watch someone dunked, you should be reminded of your baptism. Of the time you were baptized, you're a forgiven child of God. It works its way through baptism. Now, watch. This thread also works its way through communion. This thread also works its way through the Lord's table. There's a symbol. It's not an actual means of salvation in the Lord's Supper. Now, there are basically four views of what communion is in the Christian world today. The first you might be familiar with is transubstantiation. This is something the Roman Catholics hold. The Roman Catholics, uh, basing off the work of Aristotle, who was basing his work off the philosophy—excuse me—of Aquinas was basing his work off the philosophy of Aristotle. So uh, he said Aquinas really liked philosophy, and he really liked Aristotle's philosophy. Aristotle had a philosophy that said, um, you know, like something has what he called substance and accidents, and and one of the, at one level, there's the thing you look at. This is a microphone. And so there's the physical properties that make up the microphone. But there's another level at which it's a philosophical microphoneness in the world. And so there's this philosophical microphoneness about this thing. And what, what Aquinas said is that in the miracle of when the priest blesses the elements, the outer physical part you see doesn't change, but the inward... Reality changes. Now when Martin Luther came around, he looked at that and he goes, Aquinas, what are you doing? Aristotle is a pagan heathen. He's going to hell. You know, we don't care what he says, you're wrong. And so Luther got in a, a, Wall worked up about it, and he said, when the priest blesses the elements, it's not transubstantiation, it's consubstantiation, which was Luther's way of saying, I don't know how it happens, it just happens. It magically transforms into the body and blood of Christ. And so he, Luther talked about in, with, and under the elements. Calvin, at the same time of Luther, got a hold of this, and he said, "Uh, no, I'm not so sure about that. Really, I think what's more going on is there's a spiritual presence that is there but it's not an actual transformation into the body and blood of Jesus. And Calvin emphasized the spiritual nature of Jesus there with the elements. And Zwingli, who was the Anabaptist reformer of the time on the other side of the country, he said, uh, no, this is just a strict memorial. There's nothing magical going on at all. So there's your kind of your four views. And most Protestants come up, outside of Lutherans, most Protestants come up with a mix of three and four. There's some sort of spiritual presence or some kind of just plain memorial or some combination of both, however that works. What we would say to you today is, this is a memorial, but it's not just this bland ritual memorial. It's not just a, it's not just a memorial. So, you know, it's not like on the anniversary of 9-11 when we kind of have a memorial and we're just saying that that was something bad that happened. And every year we get farther from 9-11, it gets more difficult to remember. And it becomes a little less significant, especially for people who weren't around on September. My kids don't remember it. September I remember, they don't. How do you memorialize something you don't remember? It just gets farther and farther. There is, this is not what the, we don't just go, oh, hold the bread, hold the cup, go, oh. Well, Jesus died. Thank you. Let's go home. I'm hungry. Uh, that is, it's not, it's, it's a mean, I guess it's, I'm, I'm trying to say it's the most meaningful memorial that we could possibly have because of the symbology. The bread is the symbol of his body when we hold this thing. And when we, when, when Jesus took it and he tore it apart, it was a symbol. It was a symbol of his body, his flesh being torn apart his body being mutilated, the, the torture that Jesus went through that he willingly endured, this is the symbol. It's not just a hunk of bread. It's a symbol of what Jesus did for us. And this, this, this blood, this cup, when, when we pour it out, Jesus. this is a picture of the blood of Jesus. It should repulse you a little bit. To think about drinking blood it should repulse you it should make you take seriously that the blood of jesus covered over your sins there's this thread of forgiveness as a child of god when we take the lord's supper we remember his grace given to us but the thing is his grace didn't wasn't just given to us when we accepted Him as our Savior, when we prayed, when we were baptized, it wasn't just given to us. His grace is being continually offered. Which of us hasn't sinned this week? Who of us hasn't done something, Jim? I don't believe that. <laughs> Jim hasn't sinned this week. All right. <laughs> we All got to do is follow him around a little while. Um, <laughs> where... When we take the table, we're reminded that the grace of Jesus is still, the blood of Jesus still covers over our sins. He does. He does this willingly and gracefully. It was a one-time sacrifice. That is, the effects are continuing. They don't just go away. So when we come to the table, we're reminded it's a symbol that the blood of Jesus is still available to us. And that's why communion is holy. Baptism and the Lord's Supper both point to this. Now, check this out. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, I'll just read it for you. The Apostle Paul says, he says, don't be deceived. Check this out. Neither the sexually immoral nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkard, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's just painted a pretty bleak picture. And then I love what he says next. Put that up there, Richard. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper point to this washing. Baptism points to us in this washing of water where, our, where it's a symbol of our sins being washed away. Uh, the blood of Jesus, it's that same, our sins are washed by blood, which is ironic to say the least. It's the blood of Jesus that watches us washes us. Um, when my daughter Anna was really little, um, she was probably about Livy's age. She was probably about one and a half or two. I, re- I have this distinct memory. It will never leave me. She was in her crib. She had been in there in the afternoon. She had been, had woken up and we could hear her playing, but we didn't really want to go give her, get her right away. So finally she started fussing. Clarissa went up the stairs. She opened the door to her room and I heard this <gasps> gasp. Then she said, Dave, come deal with this. (laughs) Oh, no. So I go up, and as soon as I get to the top of the stairs, I can smell it. Oh, it's that awful odor. And I go in the room, and Anna had taken her own fecal matter out of her diaper and spread it all over herself, all over the crib. It was everywhere. She was... And this is nasty. I mean, this is disgusting. My wife would have nothing to do with it. Talk about my daughter being defiled at that moment, you know? And so, you know, I kind of pick her up like this, and we're shedding the clothes, and we go towards the bathtub, and she is just disgusting. And I put the clothes in a bag, and I threw the bag at Clarissa, and I said, you can deal with that part of it. And then I began to wash her. And as I washed her, The Johnson's baby soap did its magic and all that defiled stuff went down the drain and I cleaned her up and she had been washed clean. And the beauty of communion, the beauty of baptism is that these symbols remind us that we were like Anna. Our sin was filthy and disgusting. And we were rolling in it. And we were having what we thought was a great time. And then we realized. And we confessed our sin. And we realized that the blood of Jesus washes us. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, this picture. Both symbols remind us of our identity. And this is the thread. Individually grace was given to you and you identify with Jesus and you are a child of God. There's a second thread here. Thread number one says in Christ you are a forgiven child of God. Thread number two says that in Christ you are part of a forgiven family. You are part of a forgiven family. The ordinance are symbols that remind us that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. These symbols are reminders that we are part of the family of God. And this is what we miss. We might get those other things pretty, like, you know, you may. Actually take this Lord's table very seriously when you come to it. You may take baptism very seriously and you may be reminded, but we often miss this fact that these ordinances remind us that we're part of a forgiven family. Look at this in baptism. You are part of a community. Back to Matthew chapter 28. Those three words again, baptize them in the name of, in the name. When we are baptized, the symbol is we not only take the name of Jesus and identify with him, but guess what? We now identify with everyone else who has taken the name of Jesus. When Clarissa took my name, she didn't just take me, she took my family and she became part of it. We identify with Christ, we are all forgiven. We also identify with those who identify with Christ. So, okay, so um, it's that time of year I'm breaking out the jacket again. So uh, I got my cubby jacket. It needs to be washed. I just realized that. Don't look at it. Um, but it's, I wear this thing around. And what's really fun about a cub's jacket is that just in wearing this, I can find all the other Cubs fans, you know. They'll, I'll go to the, you know, the grocery store and someone will say, go Cubbies, you know. You just hear it. It's like, and there's this kind of this camaraderie, this bond with Cubs fans together. Inevitably, go Cubbies is followed by wait till next year. <laughs> and it just kind of goes together. It's like this, we're in this torture together, you know. We're in this thing together. We identify with each other as there's a symbol. Christians have this same thing. We have the symbol, not this one. And we have a symbol, and it's not the fish on the back of your car. That's not the symbol. We have a symbol, and that symbol is baptism. You are part of a family. Now, this is really next week's message, and so I don't want to take from it too much, but I want to set the table for what we're going to talk about next week. You're part of a family. Now, some of you married into a family and you don't like your (laughs) in-laws, you know, some of you guys, you married into a family and you went, oh, that's awesome. (laughs) And you know, some some, some of you ladies married into a family and you're like, I don't like my in-laws, you know, what you can, you can pick your friends, but not your family or however that phrase goes. Uh, And so sometimes like we don't like this picture, (laughs) it's not a good one. But the picture of baptism is almost a better picture rather than marrying into something, would be this picture of adoption. A really good adoption. Baptism is like the signing of the paperwork. I mean, it's like a, the ceremony which we acknowledge this to be true. And in, in baptism, we identify with the whole church. There is a sense when you were baptized, when you were baptized, in this act, whenever someone is baptized, there's an identification. I take the name of Jesus, and I'm part of a family of believers, not just at Waukee Community Church, but in all the churches that teach the grace and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus by faith. All of those people around who have embraced this, we're all part of a family together, I identify with that, not just in Des Moines, but in Iowa and in the U.S. and all over the world, and not just all over the world, but all over the world for the history of the church. We identify with that. But there's also an aspect to which we identify with the local church. We identify with the local church. You know, I struggle with the fact sometimes that there are hundreds of great churches in Des Moines The good side of that is there are hundreds of great churches in Des Moines. The bad side of that is that whenever someone gets frustrated or fed up or doesn't like, you know, Pastor Dave's new shoes, right? They offend them. They can go to another great church. We just sort of abandon our local family. One of the pictures of baptism is there's a picture of I'm identifying with Christ and with my local body. I'm identifying with this. I was talking with someone from Waukee Community Church who, he said, you know, when when a visitor comes to Waukee Community Church, we should tell them right off the bat that, you know, we are really interested in in serving them and loving them and developing a relationship. But if you stick around, we're going to ask something from you too. Because relationship is a two-way street. Let's just let them know from the beginning. This isn't a place to just sit and soak. We need you. We want you. We need to be more than we are today. We need to be better. When you're baptized, you've got a new family. You are part of a forgiven family. Now, this thread works its way through the Lord's Supper as well because you're part of a community. Um, in first, I'm, I'm going to just quickly move through this, and then we're going to get to celebrating the table together. Uh, the Lord's Supper, in, in Acts, the phrase is breaking of bread. It appears all over the book of Acts. The believers in the early church gathered and they broke bread together. They participated in this Lord's Supper together. And they often, often it's mentioned with the words koinonia. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, gosh, I wish I had more time today, but in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, look at this. He says, is not the cup of thanksgiving, that's another way to speak of of communion, for which we gave thanks a participation of, in the blood of Christ. It is not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ, because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Okay, so that word participation is the Greek word koinonia. We generally talk about that as fellowship. It's a connection with each other. So when we take these elements of the Lord's table, we're not only identifying with Jesus and we're not only covering us personally over with the, again, with this new beautiful picture of the saving grace of Jesus. It's not just about us. But what we do is we are joining together and being reminded that the Lord's table, that this forgiveness makes us part of a bigger family. Communion was something that was meant to be done together. It was meant to be a celebratory coming together where we identify that we're forgiven, and so is everyone else here that's taking this element together, and we're a family. It should unite us. But we've kind of made it individualized. We said, well, just you know, just do this on your own, and, and you know, it's really you be solemn and not joyful, and uh, who cares? about anybody else here. But the communion should bring us together. It's important to note this. Communion is a unifying part where we come together. All right, so quickly, as I conclude, and then we're going to get into some some worship that sets the table for us to do this together. Let's put these two threads together and wrap up. So, First of all, when we talk about baptism, let's talk about the individual aspect of it first. Yeah, come on up. Um, Have you been baptized? It's too important to ignore. It's a command and a symbol. If you haven't been baptized, you need to talk to me. We need to get it done. But the second thing is this community aspect of baptism. This community. Now listen to me. The last time we had a baptismal service, did you go play golf instead of come to the service? Did you go do something else because it wasn't important? This is a family thing. Like, you ought to be there. And you ought to be there and be reminded that this person is identifying with Christ and with our family. It's beautiful. Um, Malachi was born eight days ago. And... uh, he was having some breathing issues. And so as, as, Malachi, um, as Malachi was just kind of struggling to breathe, the doctors came in and we had to put him in the nursery for a while. They were trying to decide whether they would put him in the NICU and praise God they didn't have to. The next day uh, in the afternoon, the NICU doctor came over to just check on him. And I was in the nursery with him and he told me all this information and I said, okay. So, I tried to summarize. I'm like, because I got to tell my wife this information. And, and he said, well, you only just go down to the room and tell her? <laughs> Thank you. And so, on the way down, I, this guy was kind of a quiet reserved doctor. And uh, I said, uh, just so you know, just to prepare you, when you walk into the room, uh, Malachi is my sixth child. And so, we're all in this room. And my mom's down too. So, Uh, it just might be a little busy. (laughs) He goes, you weren't kidding when you said your family was gonna be chaotic. And so he walked in the room and I'm just telling you, it's craziness. Like, kids just kind of running everywhere, love it. It's a celebration, you know, of Malachi and just a new member of our family and SpongeBob is on the TV and Livy's running everywhere and, you know, it just warms my heart that she's watching SpongeBob, I love it. And so, uh, you know, just this craziness and he didn't, he's like, can we please turn off the TV and just have everyone be quiet for a minute? It was awesome. It was a party. Friends, this is baptism in the Lord's Supper. This is the community aspect of it. There is a party. There is a celebration. And yes, there is a solemnness to what we do and a remembrance, but it's both and. And so as we come to the table today, this continuing ordinance of the Lord's table, we are going to take this together. And we are a family at every level. And so we're going to ask you as you take the elements in a little bit to do this together. After Peter and the worship team sing this next song, I'll come back up with a few more instructions about how we're going to do communion.